the verses that I want to read this morning. I'm going to begin again at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 18, but I want to read through verse 6 today, and we'll be focusing our attention on verses 5 and 6, but I do want to read from the beginning of the chapter to keep in context all that we'll be studying. So we read beginning in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would illuminate these scriptures and that you would help us to understand, that you would convict us of sin, that you would remind us of the gospel and remind us of who we are and whose we are and how we should live in light of these truths. And we ask these things, of course, in the name of your son, Jesus, for his glory, so that he might be exalted. Amen. You may have a seat. As we come to this text this morning, hopefully you'll remember that although it's not recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18 of Matthew is preceded or was preceded by an argument among the disciples of Christ as to which of them was the greatest or which of them would hold the highest rank in the kingdom of heaven. And the other gospel writers, uh, namely Mark and Luke, record uh, the story of this argument. You'll remember that Jesus turned their discussion into an exhortation to introspection as He explained that their very argument, the, the very fact that they were arguing, might be a sign that they weren't even citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Rather, he explained that if any person is to reckon themselves citizens of his kingdom with confidence, he or she must begin with an honest examination of their hearts and that one of the requisite signs of the new birth and thus citizenship in his kingdom is childlike humility. And that was our focus last week. Childlike humility, and we unpacked that doctrine and, and sort of what humility looks like in relation to God and what it looks like in relation to other men. Now, in keeping the focus on his disciples and using their selfish ambition and conceit as a chance to prepare them even more for the events that must soon take place, namely his death, his resurrection, his ascension. 
Jesus continues through the rest of Matthew chapter 18 to teach them about various relational issues that they will face in the near future, specifically after His ascension, when He's gone. And so my purpose for today is, is threefold. I want to, of course, exegete the passage and, and look at some points of application. While I'm walking through the text, I want to sort of foreshadow or look towards or look at the rest of the chapter, sort of lay out the chapter so we know where we're going. And then I also want to talk about the theme that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. So by way of exposition first, we're going to look at these two verses and unpack these two verses under two headings. The first verse, verse 5, we'll unpack under the heading of the promise of divine solidarity. And then the second verse, verse 6, we will unpack under the heading of the threat of divine penalty. So the promise of divine solidarity and then... Secondly, the threat of divine penalty. So first, the promise of divine solidarity. Jesus, continuing His teaching in verse 5, says, Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. Now having described the type of person who may confidently assume their citizenship in His kingdom, namely, that one who has childlike humility, it's almost as if our Lord assumes that this type of unnatural self-degradation may come across as an absurdity. Now we know from accounts like whenever the children came to play with Jesus and the disciples tried to keep them away, we know that children did not have as much sway in this culture as they do in our culture. In our culture. Now, now they loved children. They appreciated children. They believed what the Bible teaches about children as a blessing. But they did not allow children to dictate the lives of adults like we do. So we tend to allow the lives of our children to order our whole day. Everything is dictated around eating time, nap time, play time. The the children run the lives of the adults. Well, in this culture, it wasn't that way. And so for Jesus to say, you must humble yourself like a child, may have come across like an insulting concept. As a matter of fact, I could just ask you, does that not seem a little insulting to you when I say, you need to think like a child. You need to become more childlike in our home. Last week in preparation for this, um, the theme in our family worship, the way I tried to get our kids to understand this, was other people first. And we said that over and over. Other people first. Over and over. And then this week, just by way of reminder, recapping and leading into this sermon, I reminded them and Case said, but why? With, with that face. Disgusted. But why? 
Because that's how we think of this idea of childlike humility, of putting the needs of everybody else first. It comes across as, as absurd. How can we even live if we're thinking of everybody else first? And so it seems, and, and here I'm just trying to, to trace out Jesus' line of thinking. He's continuing his object lesson from verse 2 into the discourse and to the rest of the chapter. He wants his disciples to know that, he wants them to know the status that they actually have as saints. That humility, this mindset that we take on in Christ, does not reduce you before God or in the eyes of Christ. And so he does this first by giving a promise that reveals the intimate fellowship that Christ shares with all of His childlike followers without distinction. And again, the focus is on those who have this childlike humility. So notice first the subjects of this promise. He says, whoever receives one such child. Now we have to ask, who is this one such child to which Jesus is referring? Again, if we go back to verse 2, He called to Him a child, but then He said, unless you turn and become like children. In verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child. The one such child is not an actual child. It is the believer, the Christian, who has humbled himself like a child. Now at this point, it would be helpful to trace out this theme and the subjects of this discourse through to the end of the chapter so that we can solidify in our minds, maybe even be proven or this, this truth can be proven in our minds so that we know who it is that Jesus is speaking of and begin to consider what the purpose of this teaching is. I'm positing that he's talking about believers. In verse 6, he refers to the same group. He says, these little ones, sounds like a child, but he says, these little ones who believe in me. So these little ones now have a belief, a, a faith, a belief in Christ. That's, biblically speaking, faith. If we look down quickly at verse uh, 8, the language shifts, but he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin. Now who's he talking to again? He's talking to his disciples who had been arguing. Then in verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, who's he talking to? He's still talking to the same group. He's talking to his disciples. They had been arguing. And so he's teaching them. And then in Verse 10, we come back to almost the same theme. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. The same group. In verse 14, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The same title given in verse 6, one of these little ones, although he doesn't include that uh, qualifier who believe in me. Same descriptor though, these little ones. In verse 15, he refers to them differently. If your brother 
speaking to the disciples, your brother sins against you. At the end of verse 15, you have gained your brother. In verse 21, Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And then in verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you who do not forgive, if you do not forgive your brother. So let's put all this together. Do you, be, do you see the theme beginning to emerge or the, the subjects beginning to rise to the top in regard, in, with regard to who he's addressing, who he's speaking of? He's taking this opportunity afforded to him by the arguing and the pride of his disciples to go into what is known as the fourth major discourse in Matthew's gospel concerning the manner in which we believers are to approach our brothers and sisters in Christ and in his kingdom and even more specifically we'll see in verse 17 in the local church. And so the subjects here, back to verses 5 and 6, the subjects of this promise are not literal children. Are not literal little ones, like dwarves. We're talking about believers. He began with an object lesson. Come here, kid. All right. Everybody look. Unless you become like a child, unless you humble yourselves like little children, not actually become a child, but like one, Look and look at him, see how he's small? You've got to become like this. He uses that, he holds on to that language and that picture, and he carries it throughout this discourse, teaching his children, his little ones, his sheep, about life in the new community that he's about to establish or that he's building called the church, again in verse 17. So the subjects of our Lord's promise are born-again believers, members of the church, brothers, sheep. It's all the same language. Then notice the terms and the recipients of the promise. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name. Now if we aren't clear, we may assume that this promise goes to anybody whoever receives any Christian under any circumstance. And if that's the case, then this promise is fulfilled to the greeter at Walmart who says, Say, hey, welcome Walmart. Because they received you, didn't they? And you're a Christian. But we know that's not the case. He says, Whoever receives one such child in my name. So we have whoever, which is all-inclusive and, and exhaustive, and yet it is, it, it is limited to those who receive one such child in my name. Exhaustively limited to receiving Christ's people in His name. But what does that mean? In His name. Receiving a believer in the name of Christ. Well, we, we know this type of language from things like the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When we pray, we offer our prayers in Jesus' name. Biblically speaking, when we talk about the name, or when the Bible mentions the name, especially of God or of Christ, it's talking about all that a person represents, all that they stand for, all that is connected specifically and primarily to them as a person. 
All that comes to your mind when you think of them, their reputation, their cause, their message, their theme, everything that's wrapped up in the being of God is under the heading God's name. So when we come to something like the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It does not mean you may not say, oh my God, although that is a part of it. But that's not the only thing it means. It means literally you shall not bear up or lift up the banner of the God of the Bible in vain. You shall not say God's name, adopt God's cause, sing God's praises, handle God's property, take upon yourself the theme of the Christian God or Christ in any way that is less honorable than He deserves. Now how many times have we taken God's name in vain just today? See, God's law is exhaustive. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. Or when we pray in Jesus' name, that means when we say that, that's not like our salutation, sincerely. When we say, we end our prayers or begin our prayers in the name of Jesus, we are saying, as I have prayed this, I believe wholeheartedly that my prayer is in accord with the doctrine of Christ. It is aligned with the desires of Christ, will work most to His glory. I am confessing with this statement that my prayers are only made acceptable through His mediatory sacrifice, that the only way I can come into the presence of God and offer a prayer is because of the blood that has gone before me to make that way for me into His presence. I'm coming in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Paul. My prayer is not offered in my name. That's what it means when we read, in my name, all that He is. So when Jesus says... Whoever receives one such child in my name, he's limiting this to those who receive the Christian on account of Christ, for the sake of Christ, because the person bears the name of Christ, because they belong to Christ, because they preach the doctrine of Christ. In other words, the motivation to their being received is Christ. He is the central motivating cause of their reception. And this also presupposes that the one coming, this one such child, the Christian, is coming in the name of Christ. And that is known. They're coming for the sake of Christ. They come on account of Christ. They belong to Christ. They come preaching the gospel of Christ. They're waving the banner of Christ. And they are received because of that. So then when our Lord speaks of one who receives one of His people in His name, He is referring to a person who willingly takes in, cares for, and sees to the needs of one of His children who bear His name, and the basis upon which they receive that person is because they are aware that that person comes under the banner of Christ. I love you not because you're like me, not because we share the same interests, not because we hang out at the same place or like the same music or have anything in common except 
Christ and his doctrine and his cause and his kingdom. That's what we share. That's what he's saying. Now, can you see how our Lord is already intricately weaving himself into the fabric of the life of the childlike follower? They carry his banner. They preach His gospel. They live, work, and play on account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, childlike humility doesn't reduce your standing. It raises it because you come in His name. And that leads to the honor of this promise. Notice what He says. He's speaking about those who receive His people. Whoever, that's the subject, whoever receives... The loud and clear declaration of this promise, the point of the promise is specifically about the one such child. Those with humility. Whoever receives one such child, whoever receives one single believer, one follower of Christ in my name on account of me, receives me. They receive me. And the focus is on the one being received. Now when we hear, receive Jesus, our mind immediately goes to salvation. Because we have for all of our lives heard salvation in terms of receive Jesus as your Savior. That's not biblical terminology. This is not talking about someone who receives a Christian. You hear a Christian's coming and you receive them and all of a sudden you're converted. That's not what it means. You receive someone for the sake of Christ. The focus is on the one being received. He's saying it's as if you're receiving me. He doesn't say it's like, it's like you're receiving a piece of me. He doesn't say when you receive one such child in my name, you're receiving something so near and dear to my heart. Now those things are true, but he doesn't say that. He states it very clearly. Whoever receives one such child, one who has humbled himself to this lowly status before God, one who counts others as more significant than themselves, in other words, one who is producing this fruit that shows this person's been born again. They are truly converted. They bear the mark of the new birth. Whoever receives that person, you're receiving Christ. He, Jesus, is connecting Himself with the childlike follower. To receive one is to receive Christ. To, receive, to be received in this manner is considered to be akin to Christ. And again, He's speaking to the men, he had just admonished about humility. You guys need to humble yourselves like this child. And you could probably imagine they're thinking, like a kid? I've got to be like a kid? The whole society says man up and, and take charge? And you're telling me I've got to put everybody else first? And he says, but when you do so and somebody receives you, they're receiving me. So Jesus is linking himself with his people. He counts every single one of His children in such a state of divine solidarity that to receive you is to receive Him. So that is the promise. 
of divine solidarity, but then he flips the coin and gives the negative side. Point number two, the threat of the divine penalty. Every great promise in the Bible, every great promise of blessing, also comes with threatenings of curses upon breaking or upon disobedience, breaking a covenant. We can also think of it like this. The truest and greatest love must always be accompanied by vehement hatred toward anything that would oppose the object of that love. To truly love means you must also truly hate. And so our Lord doesn't stop by making this promise concerning divine solidarity between Him and these childlike followers. He goes to the other side. Not only does He link Himself with them positively, but He goes on to speak of this relationship in negative terms toward those who would oppose such a child. Notice first the offense that is worth this or worthy of this divine penalty. Jesus says in verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Here's the offense. Causes to sin. Now the word here is the same word we've seen several times for stumbling block or offense. We get our word scandal from this word. So he's literally saying, whoever causes one of mine to stumble, whoever trips up one of these little ones. The, the, The offense of which Jesus is speaking is to place a stone of stumbling, to place an offense, to come and to give occasion for any type of moral failure or lapse into sin for the childlike believer. That's the offense. And so that brings us to the, the secondary or alternating theme of this discourse in chapter 18. Sin and any other potential moral hazard that may be found in the lives of believers and in the church. Remember the first theme we saw is childlike believers, little children, sheep, brothers. It's, it's the individual members of the church. Here we come to the opposing theme. In verse 6, it is one who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That word for stumbling block. In verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Same word. Stumbling blocks. And it's three times in verse 7. It is necessary that temptations come. Same word, stumbling block. But woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Stumbling block. Verse 8, if your hand or foot causes you to sin... Same word, stumbling block. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, same word. There's this theme here. There are the people of God, and then there is anything that would come into the picture that would cause them to stumble, that would trip them up, that would be a potential hazard in their spiritual growth. In other words, because He is has such an intimate fellowship with and has such great affection for those who are His, our Lord is dead set against anything and anyone who might put a wedge in that relationship. Whether that's a person who causes you to sin or a particular sin in your life, 
while we might treat these things as light, and we might joke about them, and we might refuse to deal with them, and we might excuse them, our Lord hates them with a holy hatred because they have to do with fractures in the relationship we have with Him. Or, um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Fractures in that relationship. Now, in our text, verses 5 and 6, this comes in the form of a person who causes them to stumble. A person is the stumbling block. So, this is the offense whether in their person, or in their habits, or in their words, or in their influence, or some other avenue, this person, the offender, has caused a follower of Christ to stumble. That's the offense. And then we see the threat of divine penalty. Jesus says, it would be better for him, that is the offender, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The great millstone was a rock. They, they used rocks for grinding grain. It would roll the grain between two rocks and it would grind it. The great millstone, or the term here, literally reads the donkey Millstone, that is the millstone so big that it required the brute strength of a beast of burden to roll it around. It's that big. Hundreds of pounds. So the picture here is horrifying. Jesus says, whoever would cause one of mine to stumble, just whoever's going to trip them up, it would be better to take them out on a ship into the middle of the sea tie one end of a rope around a stone, hundreds of pounds, and tie, noose the other end around their neck, and then roll that stone off the end of the ship. And watch the slack of that rope slither off the bow of the ship, yank that person's neck into the sea, and watch them plummet into the darkness of the sea, gasping for air, more than likely suffocating before they know what's happening because of the pressure of the deep causing panic and shock. It would be better, Jesus says, for you to die that way, a physical death, that horrifying, than to cause one of mine to stumble. Now there are a few pictures in Scripture that are as horrifying as that. Most people, when you ask, what, what do you think would be the worst way to die? They would say suffocating or drowning. Jesus said, it would be better for you to be dragged to the bottom of the sea than to cause one of mine to stumble. Better to die than to offend one of my people. Because of the divine solidarity Christ shares with His people, when someone treats one of His with kindness and receives one, they receive Him. But on the other hand, it would be better to suffer an agonizing physical death than to put a hindrance in the way of or become a deterrent to the relationship He has with His people. As loving and tender as He is, He does not play games when it comes to protecting the hearts of His children. 
playing with sin, toying with sin, is something we do, not Christ. He does not play. Because He loves and cherishes His people deeply, He also sets His righteous anger and indignation against anyone or anything, any obstruction in that relationship. And so by way of application, what are some ways in which we might cause others to sin? What are ways in which we might cause others to sin? Now when we ask that question, if you're thinking logically, you might immediately think of another question. Can I really cause someone to sin? James tells us that each man is sins when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And sin when it is birthed, or, or his desires when they are birthed bring forth sin, and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. So it's really, when you sin, it's really your own desires. That's true. So can I really cause someone to sin? The answer is no. I could hold a gun to your head and say, sin. And you always have the option to say, no. So what does Jesus mean when He says, causing one of these little ones to sin, putting a stumbling block in their path? He's referring to something that you do that would provide an occasion for someone else's already natural or innate desires to entice them. Yeah, they've already got the desires. We're all born dead in sin. We've got that. But you provide the occasion for that to be enticed. So no, you don't actually make them sin. You just set the stage for their own desires to be enticed. Now how might this happen? Well first, I believe probably the most obvious is deliberate public sin. Deliberate public sin is the most obvious. When we sin deliberately, openly, out in public, perhaps someone, another believer, will see it and they want to join in with you. So if you make a habit, and when I say public, don't think of I drove my car out somewhere in public and I did it. Think of I practiced this thing in such a way that someone else might find out about it. So perhaps you make a habit of watching vulgar movies or television, things that with vulgar language and things that display or celebrate or, or make, a, make a mockery out of things that God hates. And that word gets out. And another believer hears about it and they say, Hey, why don't I come over to your house and watch it with you? That would be a public sin. And they see it and they want to take part with you. Or perhaps... You have a habit of frivolous spending on worthless things. And another believer finds out and they say, Hey, why don't we go together? And they join in with you. That desire was already in them. You didn't create it. You simply provided the occasion. Or perhaps you sin publicly. Others see you. Maybe they don't join in with you, but they are influenced by what they see you do. So it may be the same examples watching things you shouldn't watch, spending things you shouldn't spend, or whatever, and they're just influenced. In their minds, they take up the same sins or something similar just because of your influence. They saw you do it, and so they think, 
Maybe it's not wrong. I've always been under the influ- or under the impression that that was sinful, but I saw so-and-so do it, and maybe it's okay. So they're influenced. Or maybe it simply comes in the form of an attitude. Maybe they don't actually do it, but because they see you do it or they find out you do it, their attitude towards a particular sin becomes relaxed. They see you do it and they say, well, their life is not plagued with destruction. God's not destroying everything they own. Maybe He doesn't hate that sin as much as I thought He did. And so their attitude becomes lax with regard to this particular sin. Maybe they don't do it, but if someone else were to come to them and ask their counsel, they would give a less than biblical counsel because of what they saw you do. And your deliberate public sin has provided an occasion for not only one person stumbling, but two people stumbling. See, sin will always be the great evil which separates us from God and destines fallen men to hell. But when we sin, and our sin happens to also be the occasion for the stumbling of another Christian, it's doubly offensive. And there is a sense in which, like Ezekiel's watchman, they will pay for their own sin, but you too also will have their blood on your hands. And so deliberate public sin is one way that we cause others to sin. And that's fairly obvious. Another one that I I believe is second in line with regard to its blatant nature and harm is unintentional public sin. Again, we must always flee from sin. Always. I don't think that any of us would argue that we shouldn't flee from sin. But very often... We only flee from sin because of the effects that this sin will have on us. Rather than taking into consideration our brothers and sisters and how our sin might affect them. And so when it comes to unintentional public sin, again, others see it. You didn't mean to do it. Or, or you didn't think about it. It was a slip up. It's not a, it's not a habit. But they see it and they're influenced. Perhaps... It's not a habit, but in a moment of road rage, you do something you shouldn't do. Your kids hear you say something you shouldn't say. It's not your habit. But they don't know that. And they think it's a habit. And they think, man, that looks cool. He drives cool. He does this. He does that. And so they adopt a habit that it's really not your habit. You cause them to stumble. Or perhaps in a situation at work with a coworker, you're in conversation and maybe tempers rise or whatever, you respond incorrectly with a harsh tone. And another Christian believer hears that. Now this is not your habit. And maybe even later you go back and you ask for their forgiveness. And you say, look, I, I should never have responded that way. That was not like me. Would you please forgive me? But the Christian co-worker who saw you respond first, they don't see you come back and ask for forgiveness. They simply saw your first response. And all they think is, man, he's cool. He's tough. He don't take anything from anybody. I'm going to start being like that. That's how you get ahead in the world. And perhaps they take your influence and they run with it. They're not going to come and ask you, hey, did you ever go apologize? Well, they might, but maybe they don't. And they adopt your lifestyle based on your unintentional public sin. 
See, we have to always be mindful of our attitudes and actions in public and be careful to always live in a way that is worthy of the name of Christ, that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now, we should not be driven by a fear of men. We should not be driven by the desire to please men. But we must constantly be aware that people are watching, both Christians and non-Christians. And Jesus says, it would be better for you to be drowned in the sea than to cause one of mine to stumble. Even if it's unintentional. You didn't mean to. The third way that we might cause others to sin is public liberties around or in view of weaker brothers. Public liberties around weaker brothers. Now I would imagine that this is the area that comes to, the mind, to our minds the quickest and that also brings with it the most examples we can think of when we talk about putting a stumbling block in the pathway of our brothers and sisters. That's because more often than not, we are used to living our lives by this rule. If God hasn't told me I cannot do it, I'm doing it. Or maybe we ask, we do it this way. We ask, how far can I go in this direction? How, how close can I get to the world while still leaving all of the Christians obligated to assume I'm a believer? We live this way. We push the limits of our liberty and then our liberties cause others to stumble. We tend toward pushing the limits of liberty rather than pushing the limits of holiness. And I heard a sermon this week where a pastor said, if you've never been charged with legalism, you probably don't know anything about striving for biblical holiness. Because when you start striving for holiness, the Christians are going to start saying, man, that's just legalism. No, that's biblical holiness. God said you must be holy for the Lord your God is holy. But we tend to go to the other extreme of liberty. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter 8. This also comes to mind very quickly because this is the area that the Bible specifically addresses with regard to our uh, causing other brothers to stumble. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and we studied this a little when we talked about the Lord's Supper. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines, imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are, or through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. In other words, Paul says concerning food offered to idols, we know idols don't exist. They're not real. 
There's only one God. They're fake. It's all made up. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says everyone isn't there yet. They used to live in idolatry. They sacrificed food to idols. In their minds, it was real, and so now they still think it's real. And if they go against their conscience, that's sin. Verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Again, he goes back to the Christian liberty side. It doesn't matter. Eat it. Don't eat it. It doesn't matter. It's liberty. If you don't, so what? If you do, so what? Verse 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. It doesn't matter what you do unless it causes them to stumble. Verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? In other words, their conscience tells them, don't eat it. But they see you eating it and they say, well, he's eating it and he's fine. I might as well eat it. And they eat it and they go against their conscience and they sin when they do that. Verse 11, And so by your knowledge this person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That means because you had a knowledge, because you knew something, you knew it was a liberty and you took that liberty not thinking about how they would respond, you caused them to sin against their conscience. And verse 12, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now, do you see the relation here? Sinning against a brother equals sinning against Christ. In our text, in Matthew 18, the positive side, receiving one such child is receiving Christ. So here's the concept that Paul is conveying. Liberties are debatable. You're no better off if you do or don't. It doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't say you can or you can't. And we know that because we've read every page of Scripture. We've studied it all in depth to find out. And we know for certain it doesn't address it. But... Some people may have a conscientious objection to the thing that is a liberty. And your liberty may cause someone else to stumble. In verse 13, Paul says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's a liberty. It doesn't matter. And I would rather give it up than cause someone to stumble. So in these situations, something that is appropriate for you to do is not appropriate for somebody else because of their conscience. So, in our area, right now we've got this, this alcohol debate. And some people are saying the Bible says you can't drink alcohol. So we've got this idea. So we've always got this picture of the social drinker versus the 
you can't drink at all. Or, or you've got the person who maybe has a history of alcoholism. Or in their family history, there's a genealogy of alcoholism. And those, so they say, I can't be around it. I don't want to be around it. I don't want to see it. It's a liberty for you. It's not a liberty for them. Or another one might be, we use the English Standard Version. And somebody else, because of their conscience, uses the King James Version. Now, because this is a liberty for us, you can and ought to lay it down at any moment for the sake of the conscience and spiritual growth of a brother. And if you can't lay it down, it is an idol and you should repent. So if somebody invites me to preach at a church and they say, bring your King James Bible, I will say, no problem. This is not an idol to me. I'm not constrained to use this version. If I were a social drinker and somebody said, I don't want to see that, I would say, that's fine. This is not an idol to me. It's, it's, it's a liberty. I can give it up. So we have to be mindful of these things, these liberties that can cause other people to stumble. And because we are humble, we are childlike in our humility and we put other people first, we don't say, mine, mine, mine. Because we follow the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. He didn't take that equality with God and say, mine, mine, mine. He gave it up. Another way that this plays itself out is something that would normally be appropriate is inextricably connected to something inappropriate that would cause someone to stumble. So we all have our favorite celebrity pastors that we might listen to or follow. But more often than not, that celebrity pastor is buddies with someone who is less than edifying. Now the first one, the guy you like, may be great. But the second one may be destructive. So... Think about that and the way you lead other people. Or another one, music that leads to teachers. Music itself may be acceptable, just the, 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 the sounds and the words. But the performers or the churches or the teachers or the theology of the performers is destructive. And so we have to think about these things before we hand out CDs or before we email a link to a sermon or whatever. If you must listen to a particular teacher who runs in circles with wolves, stay in that first circle. That first circle is not condemned, okay? So you're cool there. But it, it may be dangerous to point other people there if they're not as, as strong in the faith as you, okay? It's okay to listen to John, John Piper, He's not completely off his rocker yet. But don't go dancing with Beth Moore just because John Piper spoke with Beth Moore. You've got to think about this stuff. If you must listen to Hillsong or Jesus Culture, pretty much any contemporary Christian music artist, don't chase the trails leading to their churches or their pastors. And that's why we don't sing their songs. Because for me, I would rather just do Amazing Grace and the doxology back and forth every week than for you to hear a song and then go chase the trail and listen to a sermon and be caught up in the damnable heresy taught by these churches at Bethel Reading or whatever. It's not worth it to me as a shepherd 
We must guard one another and look after each other's souls. And so we have to think about, is this inextricably connected to something that might cause somebody to stumble? It's not worth it. Or, perhaps there's something you just haven't considered, and you should consider it. Many times we assume that something is a liberty when it's not a liberty. We assume it's a right when it's not a right. We assume nobody's going to be hurt by this when really we, we just haven't thought about it. A great example of this is modesty in our clothing. There are some people who are under the prerogative that what I wear is my business. It doesn't matter. What anybody else says, it's my body. I'll dress how I want to. If they lust, that's their problem. Get your eyes back in your head. Deal with it. You've got a heart problem. Well, the problem is Jesus said it would be better for you to drown in the depth of the sea than to cause someone else to stumble. That is, to provide occasion for someone else's own desires in their hearts to be drawn out. So, the question we would ask is, is my attire something that I could just at least consider with regard to this area? Or should I? And the answer is, of course. So, obviously, guys, let's strive to wear clothes that fit properly, that cover us well. Our sisters in Christ do not need extra stumbling blocks in their paths caused by our desire to be fashionable or to show off the fruit of our physical conditioning. Ladies, we men would appreciate any help with regard to guarding our hearts and our eyes in the area of the lusting after the flesh. If you have to constantly pull down and pull up and yank and twist and squat, there's not enough fabric. There's just not enough. If it's so tight that we can count every layer that you're wearing without being told, it's too tight. Now you can say... Well, you men are just disgusting. Y'all are pigs. Get your eyes back in your head and get your heart right. And I would say you're correct. You're right. You, you hit the nail on the head. And until we are glorified, we need all of the help we can get, especially from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus said, it would be better for you to be drowned in the depth of the sea than to provide an occasion for a desire in someone else's heart to be drawn out and give them an occasion to sin. The apostle said, if eating causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. So these are ways in which we might cause others to sin. Now in closing, and by way of preview for the next several weeks, I've sort of applied this backwards. We applied verse 6 first. Thinking back to verse 5 very quickly. This is central to chapter 18. This is what makes chapter 18 important. Jesus said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. How can he say that so clearly and so unequivocally? Receive a brother, receive a believer, receive me. Paul said the same thing. You sin against your brother, you sin against Christ. Sinning against a brother is sinning against Christ. Think about that. Just think about what's being said. It's not, it's not mysterious. 
In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, we read, And Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the church, believers. In Acts chapter 9, we read, Now he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Again, who was he persecuting? Believers. What did Jesus say? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Think about this. Get get your minds around this. Receive a Christian. Receive Christ. Sin against a brother. Sin against Christ. Persecute believers. Persecute Christ. How can that be? How can the Scriptures and Christ make such staggering claims that it's so unambiguous, so clear, and yet so incomprehensible that we can't understand it? We would say, if it didn't say it, we would, we would, we would be fearful to be border, borderline heretics. We would say it almost sounds like Jesus equates Himself with His people and His people with Himself. How can He speak this way? Well, the answer is because of the believer's union with Christ. Because we are united to Christ... He can say, when you receive one of mine, you receive me. When you sin against one of mine, you sin against me. When you persecute mine, you persecute me. Because we are joined in a union. And so my hope and desire, as it has been for a while now, is to use this verse as sort of a springboard into a series on this biblical doctrine of union with Christ. Because I believe that if we grasp our union with Christ, that Matthew chapter 18 will make a whole lot more sense. As I studied, I, I even wrote it out. What, what do they need to understand? Why is it so important that temptations to sin be dealt with? Why would He say, cut your foot off, cut your hand off, gouge your eye out, get rid of it? Why is it so important that sin be dealt with? Because we've been united to Christ. Why is Christ so adamant that He would leave the 99 and search for the one? Which is absurd if you're a shepherd. Because of our union with Him, those sheep are united to Him. Why is it so important in the rest of the chapter that we maintain a pure church and that we reconcile with our brothers and sisters even when we sin against each other? Because we're part of Him. We are united to Christ. There is a union that cannot be broken. And so that's the plan, is I want to talk about our union with Christ. And so the reason I'm telling you is because I want you to be in prayer for that and preparing your hearts for that and pray for me. It's not a light thing. And I'll be reading some quotes from, from far wiser men who say things like, this is the central doctrine of the New Testament. This is the central teaching. This is the, the central teaching of salvation. This is Christianity. If you don't understand this, you don't understand Christianity. This is is plumbing the depths of our faith. And so please be in prayer 
as we look at our union with Christ and think about what He says. Whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. So as we come to the Lord's table, one way that we, something that we do to maintain our union with Christ is through communion. It's through participating in the body and blood of Christ by faith at His supper. And so as the elements are passed, pray and ask that there would be a real vital fellowship during this ordinance.